Owensboro Regional Recovery is part of the Recovery Kentucky Network, helping Kentuckians fight drug abuse across the Commonwealth. We're going to discuss how it was created and how it continues to expand despite reduced funding. Stay with us. This is Inquire. For the Missionary Inquirer, I'm Don Wilkins, and sitting with me today is Owensboro Recovery Director Sarah Atkins. So first, Sarah, tell us how long have you been with Owensboro Recovery? I started with Owensboro Regional Recovery in November of 2009. Uh, That was before we opened. We actually opened and took our first residence in on February the 1st of 2010. So what was that like? the opening and how far have you come since then? Oh my goodness. Uh, Well, the opening was, uh, it was interesting. Of course, it was something that was new to me. So I had somewhat of a learning curve. Uh, I come from a corrections background, but I also have a a background in substance abuse counseling. So uh, I had to learn the model, the Recovery Kentucky model. it was something I was very interested in and I was very motivated to do. And I had a lot of good support uh, from the folks that were already doing uh, the model in other locations around the state. And so that made our uh, process of, of opening much easier because we had uh, people to mentor us through that. So, so talk about OR and, and the service it provides. Okay, so we are a 100-bed substance abuse recovery facility for men located here in Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, We are a regional center, uh, which means we mainly serve clients from Davis County and the counties surrounding Davis County. That's our biggest percentage of people that we serve, but we also serve clients from all over the state. So while we concentrate mostly on uh, folks that are local or right around here, we do get referrals from other parts of the state as well. Everyone who comes to us has to be at least 18 years old. Um, our center is for men only, so they, ha- they have to be male. They are referred to us through several different um, avenues. We get referrals from the court system, such as uh, drug court, probation and parole, um, pretrial diversion, um, things like that. But we also get referrals for people who um, come through social services. Maybe they uh, have a church or a family member who wants to help them find a placement. And then we have people who come to us themselves and just kind of, you know, walk in and say, hey, you know, I realize I need some help and, and uh, I'm here to uh, see what I can do to get placement at your facility. So, so what are the top addictions that you're treating right now? We kind of treat addiction similarly no matter what the person's drug is that they're struggling with. Um, we are based on the 12 steps. So our model is based totally in the Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous tradition. We see uh, just mainly a lot of methamphetamine use and also uh, opiate use. Uh, Those are probably the two biggest, uh, but we also have people who their main issue is alcohol. So it it just varies, um, I would say, but those are the two biggest. Now, heroin has become an issue. Now, how much of that are you seeing right now? We definitely see that. Definitely see that. Um, As I'm sure that you've already probably heard, locally, 
the opiate epidemic, we have been sort of insulated from that here locally. It hasn't hit here as bad as it has hit some of the other parts of the state, like uh, the Louisville metro area, um, northern Kentucky, and eastern Kentucky. They see a lot more incidents of uh, opiate and heroin um, addiction than we do here in the western part of the state. But we certainly have that here as well. It's it's just the geography does play a part in, you know, in that in our state. What is the difference between what you do in an actual rehab? Well, we provide uh, substance abuse recovery services. We are not a medical model. Someone goes to a medical model treatment center, they're going to have a physician that they work with. They're probably going to have a licensed therapist that they see. They're going to have have to have some sort of payer source, uh, whether it be private health insurance or medical insurance, or they pay out of pocket. Um, the how we are different is we are based on the twelve steps. We are a peer driven. Uh, model. So while I, I am a substance abuse clinician, and as I mentioned, we do also have a, a registered nurse on staff, most of the um, programming at our facility is done through the model of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, where it's one alcoholic or addict helping another person. So we do have a curriculum that we use. It's called Recovery Dynamics. That is nationally known curriculum, and that's how we, you know, we address issues with our clients. Now, one of the big reasons why we're, why we're here, Sarah, is your reduction in funding over these years and how that's affecting what you do. So can you talk about that and kind of where you started from as far as your funding and where you are now and, and how are you coping with that and what are you doing to make up the difference? Okay. So in the beginning, when we first opened in 2010, we were funded, uh, and this is this is just a part of our funding. It doesn't by no means makes up our whole budget, but uh, we received funds through the Community Development Block Grant. Uh, we were funded at a level of, uh, at the beginning, startup was 300000 a year. Um, then we knew initially that that was going to decrease. And the reason that decreased is because um, community development block grant funds are uh, allocated at the state level for certain purposes. Um, the recovery centers had, I think it, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of $3.1 million allocated for recovery centers. Well, every time a new recovery center opened, our piece of that pie got a little bit smaller. And so, like, when we opened in 2010, we were the ninth center to open. They're getting ready here in a a few short weeks, actually, to open the 15th center. So while that that allocation, the general allocation level of funding at the state has not changed, the the, the uh, programs that need it, the number of programs that need it has changed. And so we knew that be going into this from the very beginning. This wasn't something that, you know, we we could, didn't anticipate that we would have to address at some point. So we have done um, a lot of things really actually to try to make up that difference. We have started um, doing fundraising. We're actually having a golf scramble this Friday. That's one of our yearly fundraisers. So if anybody wants to play golf, come out and see us at Ben Halls on Friday. We do a, we do catering for anybody uh, can can hire us to cater a meal, whether at your um, your meeting or your event. We can do that. Um, we also do uh, several other fundraisers, like um, we have had a Boston Butt Sale. We 
trying to think. <laughs> We've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you should really get out there, especially during this time. You know, all these weddings going on. Right, you know, right. All the, all the yeah, catering. we've done we've done car washes. We've done. I mean, anything that you can think of to to you know be to do fundraising. We have. We recently did a food booth at the barbecue festival. Uh, we've also done that at the fireworks at Panther Creek, where we sell food. Um, so you know, we do we do a lot of things throughout the year to um, help supplement our income um, and help us be able to continue to operate at the same level that we have when we started. So what is your total budget a year? Uh, we're about $1.2 million a year to for our total budget for the center. And where does the bulk of that come from? So we have a contract with the Department of Corrections, and the Department of Corrections refers to us up to 60 people at a time. We have 100 beds, so up to 60 of those are people referred from the Department of Corrections, and that is for people who are on probation, parole, drug court, pretrial diversion. And the Department of Corrections pays us a per diem for the services that we provide uh, to those people. So that makes up a large portion of our budget, as well as, of course, the community development block grant funds, which we just talked about. We also receive funding through Kentucky Housing Corporation because we provide Section 8 housing in our building. Uh, our building is divided into apartment units. We have 38 apartment units in our building, so our clients have to qualify before we even admit them in the program. They have to, we have to make sure that they qual income qualify for Section 8 housing because our program is set up to help people who who don't have anything. They're either homeless, low income, indigent, um, have very low income, like they might be on disability or something like that. They don't necessarily have the resources to um, go acquire treatment at a private treatment center where they would have to pay, uh, you know, up to some, some places can charge up to $30,000 for So if somebody comes... Treatment. To you off the street, is the treatment there, is it free? It is free, yes. Okay. It is free for them. The only, is free for, the client is free for the client's family. We don't ask families to give us any money either. The only thing that we might charge them for is if they do have income, based on Section 8 guidelines, they may have to pay rent um, based on their income, but that would only be up to 30% of their income. So can you talk a little bit about your success rates versus the recidivism rates, uh, you know, with this and what you're, you're doing? Do you keep track of your clients once they leave? Yes, our clients have uh, participated in the Recovery Kentucky Treatment Outcome Study. And actually, I did not bring that information with me, but I can send it to you. Um, it is very successful as far as, you know, approximately... Um, well, let me just explain how the study goes. Once the client comes in the program, um, they are there for, oh, about, I would say about two months or so. And then they enter what we call the educational portion of the program. And they will take a survey when they enter the educational portion of the program that asks them questions about their life prior to coming in. It asks them about their drug and alcohol use. It asks them about their job history, if they've been arrested. It asks them about any kind of mental health conditions that they might have. It's a, a very thorough survey. And so they take that when they first come into the educational portion of the program. Then they'll go through the program, they complete the program, and then they leave. And when they leave the program, uh, UK kind of will flag them and say, okay, between six months and a year after this client has left the program, UK will contact them and do a follow-up survey. And so the follow-up survey, they ask all those same questions again. 
And so what we found is, depending on the substance, but in general, about 88 to 89% of the clients that follow up will report that they are no longer using any type of drugs or alcohol, which is extremely successful, yeah. extremely successful. Um, and, and they also follow up with the other um, questions as well. And some just some other significant um, things that we have found is that um, they're, they're more likely to be housed uh, stably. They're more likely to have a job. Um, their mental health uh, conditions are much lessened than what prior to them coming into the program. So it's it all it's all very positive. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so all right, uh, that's all. That's that's all the questions I have, Sarah. Now, are, are is there anything that you can think of that uh, that you want to get out there that I didn't ask? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if anybody knows someone who needs help. Um, the first step is just give us a call. You know, if even if we're not the, the place for your loved one, uh, even if maybe the person who needs help is a female and we only serve um, men, we can give you resources. Um, we can point you in the right direction to try to get that person help. Um, you know, we get a lot of calls from family members and they, you know, they are at their wits end and they, you know, they want, just want some direction and we're willing to give that. We also offer um, services that are open to the public. We have meetings uh, that are open to the public in our building every night at 630. So if you're not sure about what a, you know, a 12-step meeting is, come and, and visit with us and just come to a meeting. It's open to the public. There's no charge for it. Just come on in and sit down and listen to, you know, listen to what's going on. We'd be happy to have anybody come. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Sarah, and thanks for coming to talk to us. And now sitting with me is Mr. Inquirer reporter Jacob Dick. And Jacob, I found it interesting uh, in your most recent story about Kentucky recovery that one of your sources was none other than former Kentucky Governor Ernie Fletcher. Now, how did he become a source in this story? Well, um, whenever I first started uh, looking into this story, I uh, talked to the manager of the Recovery Kentucky Network, and he was um, telling me about the, the origins of, of the network under the Fletcher administration. And then he mentioned that Ernie Fletcher, uh, in his, his practice from, from Georgia, he was still um, talking to government representatives and um, Secretary of HUD, Ben Carson, about the Re Recovery Kentucky model. And uh, I was interested. I, I wanted to know more about what you know Fletcher was was still doing so he gave me his email and then before I knew it I was on the phone with him apparently he he is working with it and he, he told me a little bit about the progress that they've made so what uh, what kind of progress did he tell you or do you want to let uh, Governor Fletcher do the talking for you I think I'll let uh, Governor A. Fletcher explain exactly what they've been doing yeah Sonny Fletcher uh, former governor of Kentucky and this is Dave Johnson, uh, CEO for the Fletcher Group, uh, working to spread the good work that the Don Balls uh, in Recovery Kentucky uh, centers have done uh, to other states and, and localities around the country. Okay, Recovery Kentucky started, to go back to the very roots of it, it was back at the Healing Place in Louisville, Kentucky, and that was probably more than 20 years ago. From the effort in Louisville, a Hope Center was developed in Lexington, Kentucky, that followed a similar model. Don Ball happened to be very involved in the Hope Center. When I was elected governor, 
I toured both the Healing Place and the Hope Center, which I'd formerly been aware of, having served in Congress, and toured and spent uh, actually an afternoon at the Hope Center. When I appointed Don Ball as chairman of the Kentucky Housing Corporation, he developed an idea where he could take the model that was from the Healing Place and, and the Hope Center and expand that across the state uh, through some very creative uh, collaboration of funding from several different agencies. He was able to put together a funding model where we'd be able to expand that across the state and make them sustainable. He brought that to me, he and a number of folks he worked with, and presented the model, and I was very supportive of it. Uh, uh, the reason being is that, one, it was a proven model, it was very effective, and it really transformed the lives of people that were involved, and I'd seen that firsthand. I was so supportive going forward. We brought the Department of Corrections together with Community Development Block Grants, which the governor has a lot of control over, and uh, as well as the HUD funding with tax credit Section 8 housing, and then also with funding from social services through food stamps. The development of what we call medication-assisted treatment wasn't quite as evolved then as it is now. Uh, elected not to uh, do what we'd say a clinical approach for a couple of reasons. One, it, it raises the price to, uh, uh, of doing business and the operating costs substantially. Two, the efficacy rates that we saw in the Healing Place and Hope Center really met or exceeded anything else that was out there. So by, at that point, electing not to, to do a, a more of a medical treatment approach, we end up being able to treat a lot more people and we had at least as good and probably better efficacy rates. Yeah, I think one of the, the real advantages of uh, Recovery Kentucky program is that uh, not only does it focus on kind of a, an absence, uh, peer supported kind of community, but it also emphasizes the importance of, uh, of employment and, and housing, uh, you know, areas that uh, really kind of give a sense of per, a person's sense of, of belonging and as a, a participant in the community when they have a place to live and they're contributing through uh, employment. And I think if you look at some of the outcomes uh, the increase in employment activities uh, after they leave the program is, is pretty dramatic. So, you know, kind of granted that medication-assisted treatment at this point in time is is kind of the, uh, held out as the gold standard uh, in terms of treatment of opioid conditions specifically, but also other substance uses and, and uh, alcoholism as well. But the, uh, the abstinence-focused, peer-supported community you know, has a, uh, a lot of uh, benefits to it as well. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to you know, come to grips with is that, you know, really is not one size fits all, that different um, treatments and interventions work for, you know, individuals at different levels. And, uh, you know, just like a lot of medical treatments, the same medications uh, that work for one person may not work for another. So we have to be a little more uh, open uh, to the variety of interventions and recovery programs that are out there that, you know, kind of that taken together will hit the, the uh, majority of individuals that need the services. Uh, at the very beginning, it was not intended that the community development block grants would be an ongoing uh, funding source. Now it has, and it's proven to be sustainable. And I think even with uh, recent legislation, 
to support the continual funding of community development block grants, I think it's a, still a fairly solid funding source. But what we see going forward in the future and is a looking at a broader continuum of care. And as Dave said, one size doesn't fit all. The program is very effective, and we have waiting lists on all the centers, so the demand is there, and the outcomes are, are pretty clear through UK's drug and alcohol recovery surveys that they've done. As we go forward, though, I think we have to acknowledge that there are other forms of care and treatment that are appropriate for different people. And I, I think we need to collect more data on the front end and look upstream because I, I do believe that more data we have on the types of treatment that are most effective for individuals and the ability to be able to predict that is going to be important. That opens us up for funding from Medicaid and from private payers uh, for a, a medical type treatment or, or the professional type treatment that will be more appropriate for some people. Uh, again, what, what we see is that the Recovery Kentucky is a proven, it's a great model. It, it's not outdated at, by any means. The funding is, is still there, but I think there's other funding sources that we can look and expand into. We're also talking with USDA and rural development because the opioid crisis and addiction as a whole has a tremendous negatively impact, negative impact on economic development and workforce. And if we can work with USDA on rural development, we'll help improve the availability of the workforce and, uh, and I think improve the economic development in rural areas. And that will wrap up our show for this week. I want to thank Mr. Inquiry reporter Jacob Dick, Owensboro Recovery Director Sarah Atkins, and former Kentucky Governor Ernie Fletcher for being part of the show. To send us questions or to provide feedback, email us at newscast at messenger-inquire.com. Remember, you can find us on the Messenger Inquire's website, its mobile app, and iTunes, where you can subscribe to Inquire. Until next time, I'm Don Wilkins saying good day for Inquire.